This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to the first installment of this spring 2018 UC Santa Barbara Innovator Story Series. I'm John Greathouse. You can follow me on Twitter, at John Greathouse. We have a true innovator with us tonight, Hans Wilden. So Hans is the CEO and founder of Industry Ventures. And Hans's innovation was in the secondary market for the venture capital industry. So when you make a venture capital investment, it's often a 10-year fund. Sometimes it goes 12 and 14 years. And sometimes those companies don't even exit at that point. So if you're an investor in a VC fund, it might take 15 years for you to get your money back. If you're an employee at a venture-backed company, it might take you 8, 9, 10 years to get your money back. So what Hans did, he was one of the first people to say, that's crazy. I'm going to put liquidity into that market. I'm going to give people a chance that have made those sorts of investments. I'm going to give them a chance to get their money out sooner. Created a multi-billion dollar industry, and we're going to talk a lot more about that. The other thing that Hans did that was quite innovative and and interesting to, to this discussion is he was one of the first investors in venture capital firms that was willing to back small founder uh, VCs, so founders are turned VCs. So folks like me that maybe they ran a business, then they decided to be a venture capitalist. Hans uh, backed over 70 of those funds, huge number, uh, including helping create uh, Chris Saka's uh, fund, uh, which is one of the most successful small funds of all time, um, Lowercase Capital. And, and Chris has gone on and done uh, tremendous things with Lowercase, uh, thanks to Hans's help. So earlier in his career, that should be enough, but Hans actually started two software companies. Uh, We'll talk about both of those. I think the fact that he was an entrepreneur, a successful entrepreneur, it really made him, uh, really put him in a unique position to be entrepreneur friendly and to understand really what it takes for an entrepreneur to succeed. That made him a better investor, both in VC funds as well as directly into into, uh, startups, which he's done extensively. Hans earned his MBA from the Columbia um, School, uh, Business School in New York, and he earned his BA with distinction, I might add, from the UC Santa Barbara School you might have heard of, the uh, beach with a school. Uh, and, and we'll talk a little bit about his, his career here when he was at um, UC Santa Barbara. He and his wife are very active philanthropists. They support UC, um, UC Santa Barbara in a number of ways, including the technology management program. They've been very generous. They're also members of the Lancaster Society. They support the Eugene Lang Center of Entrepreneurship at Columbia University. Uh, and they're also very active at the Headland Center um, for Arts in Marin County. Let's welcome Hans to our stage. Welcome. You're back. It's nice to be back. I bet. It must yeah. be a little, little uh, surreal looking out and going, hmm, I remember this room. Yeah, it was, I think it was a bar when I was <laughs> Yeah, there. it was. Yeah. <laughs> um, Not that you went, you never went into yeah, it. Yeah, it was called Countdown. I don't know if you remember that. It went through a couple different names. But yeah. It was a bank. It was burned down by this radical students. It was a bar. Yeah, and and a now it's an bar. amazing classroom. Um, we're going to talk a lot about industry, uh, but, I, but I want to start with the software companies because I think it's really fun, foundational to your career. Um, you started both of those with your brother. Um, I think you had very complementary uh, skill sets, but I'd love to hear what, what motivated you to start those companies. We're going to talk about Columbia a little bit later, so I don't want to jump too much into your Columbia experience, but you found yourself in California. Why did you start the first software company? And then let's talk a little bit about how that experience was with your brother. Sure. Um, so I grew up in Minnesota, so I came here from out of state uh, originally. 
uh, and it was in a in the dark dark part of winter when I got my acceptance <laughs> package from Santa Barbara, and there was a couple of people sitting on the beach on the cover, and it was pretty nice to have. So I was. I was. Uh, Did you have? Had you had a chance to visit at that point? I had never visited. Uh, uh, it's kind of a thing in my career, which we talked a little bit about in the, the eat session before this. But um, I had never even been here before when I accepted, and I, the first time I came was when I checked into Anacapa. Wow! Um, so I was very lucky to to have picked this place. Um, but yeah, so why uh, that, that brought me out to California? Uh, my brother was a, a software developer when I was young. And so we had a little yin and yang going on when I was little, where I'd go outside and, and you know, when it wasn't freezing, um, and so you know, play sports. Yeah, and uh, and then you know he'd be inside coding on his computers. How many how many years difference? He's three years older. Okay. Um, and so he, uh, you know, he was a developer since the beginning, um, since high school. And he worked on Netscape, right? He did. Yeah. So he um, he was up in Silicon Valley. He was basically coding for different companies. He coded part of AutoCAD for Autodesk. He coded part of Informix's database. I don't know if you remember that, yeah, but Illustrator. I'm old enough, yeah. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then he, uh, he wrote some uh, code that helped the Netscape browsers run on Unix platforms because okay. at that point, yep. um, you know, Unix wasn't really cross-platform. Right. There were different versions of yep, it for all I the remember. different um, operating systems. Um, kind of forks, but the um, you know he so he helped you know write, write part of the first browser interface for Netscape. Um, Did you guys know that that was so? You had that history. You knew he was sort of the coder. You're a little bit of the sales and marketing guy. Like, did you, was that sort of preordained that you were going to start Microline or, or something like Microline when you graduated? No. So my brother and I didn't talk a lot because I think we were very... Because he's a coder. He was a coder. Um, and he's like <laughs> the opposite of me in that regard. That he's become <laughs> more mainstream. Um, but the, uh, yeah, we didn't, we didn't have a, a relationship that was like it is today. I think that, um, you know, we had different hobbies. We spent different time doing things. Right. Um, you know, he was always doing something very different than me. Um, you know, what happened was I was I went to go get my uh, MBA, and I was in New York City when he when he you know when he when he wrote part of the browser, and you know I, I was talking to him like you talked to your brother, and he was showing me what he was doing and things like that, and then I was using it. Yeah. And uh, and I ordered a book on it and things, and I was like you know, and then when AOL came out and all that, I mean I saw that happen. Um, and it's and hard I, for folks watching this, excuse me, interrupting you, but, you know, this audience is 19 to 22-ish, and yeah. a lot of people watching this around the world are, are in their 20s. It's kind of hard for them to put themselves in that place. Like, you were sort of getting a sneak peek at maybe, like, a smartphone, like, eight or ten years ago, right? Yeah. Where, you know, stuff that most people, if they were aware of it, it was in a real casual way. They weren't really aware of it at any kind of detailed level. That's right, and I think you know even the people that were involved in it at that point didn't have a good sense of the uh, how could they impact. Um, but I was you know young and uh, wanted to start a business. I was in business school, and I was uh, I went there pretty young, almost right after Santa Barbara, and so I had a chance in my life to go do something on the edge and take risk. And if I failed, I could probably backstop myself in a normal right. day job. Um, and there are a couple companies that offered me jobs out of business school and said if you go do something on your own and it doesn't work we could interview you again mm, for the nice. next so i felt like i had a you know a little bit of a risk adjusted shot at um trying to create something and i had this brother who was an exceptional developer and so i uh 
you know, I, 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 I moved out to Silicon Valley. I, my now wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, helped me get an office. Um, he said he was going to quit his, his job when, he, uh, when, I, when I quit my job and moved out there. Um, he didn't, and so I, I ended up moving to Silicon <laughs> Valley by myself, um, sleeping in an office by myself, um, and having my brother not quit his job uh, for the first three months of me being there, which was painful. But after many conversations, and my mother called him and things, he finally quit his job, um, and we started a company together. And and we used well, tell uh, us what uh, what Microline did. Like, what was that original? It was a pretty simple idea. It's like the the browser at the time. Uh, just let you uh, look at text and, and, and images on the internet. It didn't let you um, run an application through it. And so we, we had developed app, application interface components that let you, as a developer, um, you know, build an application that would run in the browser. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a version of the browser. They added a, a language and a virtual machine, Java, the language and the virtual machine to the browser that allowed you to do these, uh, you know, run run an application through it. And so we developed a set of development tools that let you, let you build an application, run it through the browser, and then you could actually use your apps on the internet, um, which everyone does every single day today, but at that right. time didn't right. exist. Right. Um, and we created a, a business around that. So you sold that company to Blaze. Blaze was later acquired. Yep. And then that entity went public? Yeah, so uh, we bootstrapped Microline. I went and met VCs and things, and, and there weren't, you know, it was a small venture market at that point. Right. Um, and most of the venture funds had small funds, Right. funny enough, yeah. at that point. They would be was, considered small now, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you, you had funds that were $50, $100 million were the average fund size. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was 1995. Um, and um, so we actually didn't end up taking venture capital. We bootstrapped it. Um, first year, we had over a million in revenue, and then I ended up doing an M&A deal and negotiating the sale of the company to another private company that had um, a lot more revenue, and we put the two companies together renamed it Blaze Software, and then um, took it public. We took a couple years later to have that offering happen, but we went and took the business public, and then it was subsequently bought uh, twice. So now uh, Fair Isaac owns it. How long did you run with that business? So were you there? So I was only, we only did the business for a year, and then we had to stay at the business. So we combined it with for a year. Okay. So I was there for two years, years. Two yeah. years. It was really uh, short and sweet. Yeah. Um, it, it, I, you know, I went from being completely broke uh, to having some money, yeah, um, but not enough to retire. Um, and so my brother and I, we actually, it was a pretty stressful experience. So, you know, starting companies is is not easy. Yeah. Um, and I've got some good stories related to that. But, um, you know, we both really burned out, honestly. And so we both took a year off. I consulted with a company who was one of our customers. He also consulted with a company um, that was doing some things, that he, you know, which, which was related to what we had. Um, and then it, it took us a while, but we started another company after that. And that was Spidera. Spidera. What, That's right. What I helped them start business? Spidera. What, what did you guys do there? Well, so I, um, I helped him and Ajit um, and Rich, uh, which was the ERA of Spidera, um, start the business, get it financed, get it going. But I, then I started Industry Ventures. Um, so it took about three months to get that business going. And then I started this business. Um, but I kept an ownership in that and then helped them uh, with that business as an investor mm-hmm. and advisor. Um, but what Speedera did was it took, um, you, you, all, you all use it every day, um, it, it took, t- took um, large files, um, media files, um, any sort of you know, files, um, 
and serve them to the browser really quickly. So we created a, it was called a content distribution network. Um, it was basically a layer on top of the internet of, of servers and, and things that were distributed that sped up the internet experience for right, a browser right. user. Um, and so we, you were able to watch Netflix and you know iTunes was served off of it and we served DoubleClick off of it and things. Um, and you know the, the leader in that market out of the gate was Akamai, Akamai which yeah. was in Boston. Yep. And then we became a number two player going from like a number four seat to a number two seat. Um, they, they sued every one of their competitors and we finally got sued as well. Um, and then through the, through the lawsuit proceedings related to um, patent uh, claims, um, they ended up buying our business um, well, uh, kind of at the end of the process. Mm. And, and we actually were acquired for 10% of their company uh, when they were public. And so... Um, what what year was that? Uh, 2005. Okay. So we had already gone through the bust and come back. Yeah. So, I mean, the uh, one reason why I started Industry Ventures was because um, when we started Speed Air Networks, uh, it was late 1999. Um, and within the first seven months of the company... Um, being operating, we actually signed an M&A deal to be acquired for $500 million. Um, and it was a definitive uh, agreement. Wait, Industry Ventures was? Or the, no, no, Spidera. Spidera, okay. Yeah. So what happened was we started Spidera. We got it running. Yep. We got approached to be acquired by a public company. Right. Um, they, uh, when we had bankers on both sides, we actually signed a definitive purchase agreement to be acquired. But there was a clause in the agreement that said it had to be board approved because it was public business. And... Um, everybody, we announced the company that it was sold. We yeah. announced, we sat down with all the employees of Spider and said, hey, we just sold the business, right? Everyone's, you know, yep. clapping and, and, and all excited that they're all making all this money because we give everybody stock options. Um, my brother was flying back and forth to uh, Seattle where they were based and um, was looking at homes, bidding <laughs> on houses. I mean, it was, we all thought it was done. What, um, month, what month and year? So we signed the M&A deal, I think it was in March, which of 2000, yeah, which see, is like the peak. Yeah, that's why I'm asking, because the bust was March of 2000. And I, they re- rescinded the offer in June, yeah, I believe. that's about right. Their stock uh, went from like 110 bucks to like, I think, 20 bucks because uh, the whole dot-com collapse happened, and they were part of it. It was an internet infrastructure business. Um, they ended up paying a $5 million breakup fee, which, mm. was, which was the breakup fee. Which, you know, so next thing you know, we were insolvent and we were, we were going to file bankruptcy. Um, so you so guys we, kind of dodged a bullet because you could have taken their private or their public company stock and not been able to sell it. I think months. everybody would have taken the stock anyway. Really? Yeah. I, everybody was, you know, every, we had announced it was sold. Every employee was... Counting their money. Everybody was counting their cash. Yep. Um, nobody was going to work very much anymore. Our sales team, you know, was like, okay, we're all getting right. acquired. Getting, we're going to be selling a different, different product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we had this period of time where it was a learning experience where it's never done till it's done. It's and never, never done. Never and count, sometimes it's not even Never done count the done. money until the money's in the bank. Right. And, uh, and, and, and that was a good learning experience. But um, everybody went from being extremely happy and extremely wealthy on paper. Yep. To literally being, you know, we were going to file bankruptcy because um, we managed it to just get right. rid of it. Right, um, right. So it wasn't financed to continue to operate. Um, and so, yeah, we we uh, we went into, a, you know, we hired a bankruptcy attorney and everything. Um, and then I went and started helping the business buy all its debt back because it had $20 million of debt from Comdisco wow. and, and, Hewlett, and uh, Compaq, which became Hewlett Packard. Um, and, you know, we were able to buy all, down all the debt. So uh, we bought all the did debt. You, did you have, because I know your first venture was 
was bootstrapped. Did you take VC money in the second one? We did. Okay. So we had a, a venture syndicate. Um, one of the largest investors was Trinity Ventures. Yeah. And then uh, Narain Gupta, who is the founder of Wind River, was a personal investor and on the board, and he was a big investor. Yep. Um, so you were in the big leagues at this point. It's very different yeah. from when it's you and your brother, you didn't take any money. No, no, it was a full venture deal. Yeah. Um, yep. And it was, you know, going to be extremely successful and out of the gate. It went from being an amazing, huge home run potential, everybody's right. counting their money, to right. like, oh, broke right. um, very quickly. Um, but I, we, I was able to, with the CFO, and, 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 you know, buy down all the debt in the business, which was going to cause it to file bankruptcy. So I bought all the debt back at uh, about 15 cents in the dollar, um, got rid of the debt, and then we, the venture syndicate said, hey, if, you know, I put money in and they put yep, money yep. in. We all kind of did our, you know. Keep the, it going. Keep it going. We did. And then the management team and, and Ajit was the CEO, my brother, who was CTO, um, you know, managed it to cash flow, break even. And, and uh, we, it took a couple years to get that business to a point where, you know, it was stable, growing, cash flowing, which we did. Right. And then we went into a full battle with Akamai and, and head to head, you know, uh, we had a better, faster, cheaper network and we started taking away big customers and, and, um, and the lawyers called. And then they sued us, and then we went into court with them for a while, and we were spending probably a million a month on legal fees. That was another period wow. of ugliness. And then um, it looked like you know the, the case was going to go our way, and so they just bought our company. Yeah, I had a similar experience um, with a robotics company. It looked like we were going to win the lawsuit, and yeah. they bought us. It's, it's brutal. It ended up being um, fantastic. I mean, the ending... Well, you ended up having a decent, a decent outcome. Yeah. I mean, more than a kick save. I mean, a lot of lessons there. So one, you know, one is, is um, the importance of, of just not throwing in the towel. Like when you take money from other people, you take debt from somebody, I mean, you're much better off at least giving them pennies on the dollar than just walking away from the thing. And that, that, yeah. I think that helped you. I mean, if you had just been like hands up, I'm out kind of situation with those players in that deal, I think doing that next deal would have been pretty dang tough. Everybody talked about walking away, but oh, sure. at the reality is that nobody could um, and nobody wanted to. So I think uh, everybody put their head down and made it all work. Yeah. Um, but but the end, funny enough, the ending um, exit value for the business, because they, they, when they bought our company, we got 10% of their stock. Their market cap was about a billion dollars. I think it traded at about 10 bucks a share. Um, and they made us lock it up, right? So Because mm. we had 10% of the whole company. Right, right. And, and, and the stock went from like $10 to $50 in a period of two years, and we got windowed up every quarter for two years. So wow. that actually ended up working out. That's awesome. Um, and we got almost what we um, thought we were going to get out of the gate. Yeah. It just took, you know. So half a billion dollars, roughly. Yeah, took took a, a few years later. Nice. And, and while but it, it almost went under twice between the periods. So. Yeah, it's so glamorous being, yeah. a, being an entrepreneur. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about your um, brother. Um, I had um, Aiden Nabaz here um, last quarter. Some of you guys got to see Aiden, and he, he started a company that Googlebot came AdSense. So he yeah. started that company with his brother and his cousin. What, what are your reflections now on having a couple businesses with your brother? You're very different, complimentary. Would you recommend that? Like if somebody, a young person came to you, and would you say definitely do it? And if you said yes, then what guardrails would you ask them to put up to, to keep it? You know, to keep it from becoming a disaster. So I think it's a, it can go either way. So I think it's a hard question. I think it depends on the, the, uh, the family members or the brother-brother brother relationship or sister-brother or sister-sister or whatever. Right. Um, but the, I, think, I think it really depends. In my situation, I had a, not a great relationship with my brother out of the gate. Um, of the first business? I'd say before the first business, it was... 
he was reclusive, um, not easy to talk to, you know, didn't even give us his address, things like that. Um, <laughs> minor things. Um, and uh, so I didn't really have the relationship I have today with him, which is awesome. But do you um, think you would have the relationship you have today if you guys hadn't gone through those tribulations? No, I don't. I think the reason why we have a good brotherly relationship and the unique one that we do is because of that. Yeah. So I would say it's one of the things in my life that I'm proud of. Yeah. Is good. that I have a great relationship with my brother um, and I would have not had it if we wouldn't have done the business together. Yep. That's very clear. Um, but the, uh, the reality is, is do I recommend it to other people? I think it depends. I think one of the reasons why it worked with us is that we started with something that wasn't great and then we were both put in a horrifically um, stressful environment which made us right. you know, right. deal with each other um, in a way that was unique. And then you know, he did some things to me, which in retrospect was kind of brutal, um, but in, it helped shape me too, where he wouldn't answer the phone at work. So, um, you know, he's a developer, he wanted to develop, and then he didn't want to answer the phone and do QA. So he, he wouldn't do, you know, uh, customer service. Right, he right. wouldn't take QA calls. Yep. Um, so suddenly I'm sitting there without a CS degree talking to right. developers, building yep. applications on the internet, and they were asking me all the questions, and they were the caliber of him. And then I have to take, you know, yeah, hold on, you know, go ask him, come back, and, you know, do that. And it was a learning experience. It was like that every single day for a year, <laughs> almost two years. Um, but that helped me understand technology. It helped right. me understand software development. It gave me a lot sales. of different, yeah, yeah, sales and everything, um, and customer support and QA. Right. <laughs> Sorry, right. everything, um, which is invaluable. Um, and I'm happy he was that way in retrospect. But the, and he didn't want to do the calls, and he didn't want to talk yeah. to the people. So, um you know, for me, that was my skill set and, and, and value add as well. So I did the sales marketing and business development and ran the, 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 the non-development side of the company. Um, and if you're not willing to do that as an entrepreneur, I mean, you can't just look behind you and say, oh, well, I'll have someone else do it. It's like, no, you got to do You have to do a lot yeah, of things yeah, you yeah. don't want to do. You have to do everything. Yeah. I think, um, you know, people ask me, should I go to business school? And, and, and you know, honestly, like, I've had a great experience because of my business school in the last five years, but I would say the first 10 years or maybe even 15 on the entrepreneur side, um, this, the, the, the frameworks aren't good and interesting and important, but yep. because it's such a rudimentary thing, which is, hey, you're starting with nothing yep. and you have to build something, yep. um, a lot of the business school frameworks don't apply to that experience. I agree. Um, but, but now that I have a, a, a bigger operation and, and it's, it's more of a, a company that has processes and and um, you know, compensation schemes and all the different yep. things that a normal business does at scale, um, it's been invaluable. But yeah. um, well, it gives you so tools, they, right? It gives you a t it uh, like a tool belt. Yeah. But like you say, at a startup, those those tools are often for pre-prepared problems like uh, like HR or a yeah. lot of the t problems at a startup aren't. There's no tool on that tool belt no. to fix that problem. You learn to use tools that aren't meant for the problem. Right. Right. Uh, or but, you make your own. But tools. end up working. Yeah. You build um, your own. Yeah. So you, you uh, one time you said, um, I wouldn't have, so your transition to financial services from software, mm -hmm. 16 years ago, right? You've been in this business now. You said, I wouldn't have done it if I knew then what I know now. My software business was much easier. I think everyone kind of feels that way. Like, if you, you would not get out of bed if you knew what you were facing during this startup journey. That's a, that's a given, I think, for all, all entrepreneurs. But what were the things you didn't anticipate? So you just had two very stressful 
multi-year, not the most glamorous startup experiences. What was it about the financial services world that kind of threw you for a loop? Like, why weren't you ready for anything? So I didn't know anything. <laughs> um, I think that's been a theme of everything I've done, which uh, is kind of funny. But um, I went into it assuming that grass was, grass was going to be greener, yep, yep. that lifestyle would be better, that I wasn't going to be as stressful, that it was going to be easier. Because, you know, you look at the other side of the table and you think, oh, that's a great job, you know. <laughs> um, but it's, it, it was, I think if I would have taken a job at a venture fund um, and been a you know, a junior person or a partner or something at a venture fund, that might have been the experience. But because I went and started one from nothing, um, and I had not done that before and had no context, I didn't know what I was stepping into. Um, so, And you uh, started a new... So I had that experience with, uh, I've already alluded to it once, the medical robotics company. Not only did we start a company, but we started an industry. Like, we yeah. really started a new way of, of, yeah, yeah. of doing medicine. Don't I don't recommend it. I mean, it's great... 20 years later to look back on it. But yeah. you kind of did the same thing. You, yeah, yeah. you started a new company, which is hard, and then you kind of started a new way of, of deploying assets and, 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 and deploying cash, yep. uh, missionary selling, trying to explain things to people. Um, so, yes, it's doubly hard, and you don't realize it at that time. You just, it's exciting. You feel like, doesn't every, why, why doesn't everybody else see this? Yeah. Um, but you talked about, um, I know you and I have talked in the past, that you were early, and obviously that's brutal. It's hard when you're ahead of the market. But there are some advantages to being ahead of the market when you look back on it. What are some of the things that when you look back on, you say, yeah, I, I wish we would have hit it from the, from the, you know, for the first day. I'm going to take the first student question in a second. But what are some of the things when you think about it, like, well, yeah, it took a while, a lot of missionary selling, but there was some, there was some upside there. I think it took probably eight years before I felt like there was some good traction. And right. That, what I was saying for eight years, people were saying to me. I think we that bears repeating. Um, it took eight years. Yeah, yeah, eight years. I would say four really horrible years. So your typical and then overnight three success. kind of bad but not great years. Yeah, um, or bad but not good. Um, and that that's it took eight or nine years basically to get from what I was saying the whole time to, to having go to a meeting and, and, and they would say it to me. And, and people were actually going, yeah. I, I've no, had, that they were telling me no, I know. what that, I already knew. And you're like, wait um, a minute, this is what I've been saying. Yeah. So that, that's how long it took. I, um, I think there are some pivotal things that happened in the market that caused that transition. And there was a, I think all markets have this point where when you go in them, if they become a big market from nothing, right. there's these kind of pivotal moments that, you know, the dial turns and, and things start uh, really moving and growing and changing yep. and uh, adopting. Um, I, I, I look back at those first nine years, and I think probably three or four of them were wasted is no. the reality. I mean, I could have been doing something else probably. But it's just, it's, um, I, the reason I say no is it's hard to identify maybe specific things that you've carried with you, but you yeah. carry, it's like reading a book, and you go, well, no, I don't remember much about that book. Yeah. But if you really read that book thoughtfully, it's embedded in your psyche. And you and you can use leverage that book in certain ways. Sure. Maybe I'm rationalizing. My, I think it took me. I think it took me twice as long to learn what I could have done in, 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 uh, well, it in always, half the time. It always takes longer. Yeah. So the you know, yeah, I I think that that's been a little bit of one thing I've learned about myself too is it, I, I'm a little take a while take a while to get things right kind of person. But it's um, typical. Startups typically take time. We yeah. hear about the ones that are overnight successes. Overnight is usually multiple years, even when it's quick. We're going to come back to this line in a second, but I'm going to get the first student's question. 
Uh, since your lot of work involves IPOs, what is your opinion on ICOs and subsequently cryptocurrencies as a whole? Crypto. <laughs> I'm probably not a good person to talk about that. Because um, you're over 22? Yeah. I have a good friend, Bart Stevens, who's much better at it. And maybe he comes down here and talks to you about it. Um, I'm actually looking for a crypto expert. So okay, I'll introduce you to Bart talk. and Brad. They have the Blockchain Capital Fund. Great. Um, he's one of my neighbors and a friend. Um, but the... Um, we have not done a lot of crypto investing, nor do we have we invested in ICOs. Um, we have a little money in, in, in a fund called Blockchain Capital, where Bart Brad manage it, um, and so we know the market. Um, ICOs were a great marketing term, I think, to get people excited about doing mm-hmm. these kind of initial public offerings because they're initial coin offerings, but really it's initial public offering, um, and it's it should be regulated. Um, so it's it's I view it as something that's being done that is actually um, should be regulated. I think they're in the process of regulating it. The SEC will see what happens out of that. And I've I've heard now they're changing the names from ICOs to something else. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know the new name, but I thought what it was it? called the. It's not initial coin offering anymore. It's uh, I think it's just coin offering or something like that. They're Jeff. They're I forgot the name of it, but they're trying to find a new name mm-hmm. that doesn't right. Uh, sound like an IPO, right? Um, I don't think it'll change. I think get, that I think the that, off the I think if they're issuing securities in a coin for, coin format, it's still securities. But right. so I haven't participated now. There's been a lot of ICOs that have been really successful. People made a lot of money on them, and they can convert them into dollars through yes. through Bitcoin or Ether. But um, so there is money in that today, a lot actually. Yeah. Um, but I I man- so the firm I manage now is is a registered investment advisor with the SEC. We have over $3 billion of capital from institutions, and, and um, that includes you know, the, some of the big state pension funds and endowments and foundations and hospitals. and you know, Right. People's retirement. Yeah, people's retirement. And, and, um, and so uh, I can't participate in things mm. uh, out of the funds that could potentially be right. uh, deemed uh, not good activities. So I, 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 I don't do it. Uh, but, but I think that if you look at that as a new market, of course. Um, and you look at it as a new opportunity. Um, and if I was an entrepreneur, you know, uh, it's not a bad place to go because yep. people like me can't do it. And, you know, therefore, it's, you know, there's not going to yep. be a competitive angle to so it. And therefore, Hans can, of 16 years ago probably would have been all over it. I probably would have jumped in there and, and, and you know, like, Figured like, it out. like Bart and Brad did because um, they were starting a new business and they focused on it. And it was a new yep. area and they started yep. doing it five years ago. And, you know, they've made an enormous amount of money doing it. Um, so I'm not saying the opportunity is bad. I'm just saying that for right. us and for, for our firm, we haven't, we haven't been in, involved for, for our own reasons. So the competition is going to be less. I, I have a former students. I'm not going to name them on camera. But um, they, the amount of money they're dealing with right now as 25 to 26-year-olds is unbelievable. Yeah. There's a lot of money in the space. So, and it's all, um, I'll, I'll use all with an asterisk, it's mostly people less than 30. I'm not kidding. It's like really yeah. a young person's game. Um, and I, the class that I teach on the future of entrepreneurship, we talk a lot about it because even if you don't believe in cryptocurrency or that currency or this currency in particular, the underlying technology of blockchain is already making a huge impact on the world. And there's lots of opportunities for you to play there. So come to it's that a class great opportunity for it. a new fund and a new yeah. fund business. And, you know, yep. there's a few out there um, that were early in it. And, yep. and, and, uh, and maybe, maybe they can come and talk to you about it. Yep. I'm going to try to bring something to that other class this quarter. Um, I had somebody lined up, and, and um, he's not able to make it now. He's actually, the reason he's not making it is he has this big conference in L.A. It's gotten so big now, he extended the number of days. 
and he conflict, he conflicts <laughs> yeah. with the schedule. It's on fire. So let's go back a little bit to those first uh, three or four years at industry when you said, you know, maybe they weren't your time best spent. Um, differentiation on a new business is key, but how did you differentiate that business? So you kind of went out there and said, hey, guess what, guys? I got a shingle. I'm doing this investing. This is kind of before you started giving liquidity to, to venture as a, as a, as a go-to-market strategy. I mean, you obviously did things. I think this is um, hopefully helpful to a student because you guys you typically are starting out without the reputation, without a ton of money, but there are certain things you can do to, uh, to beat the competition. Yeah, so I started out with nothing really. Um, and the, the reality was is when I started investing, right, the, the, the stock market collapsed, so it was 2000. Mm-hmm. And you know, we thought we were gonna sell my you know, business I did with my brother, and I yep. thought I was gonna be you know, this investor, and you know, the whole, Life is the whole thing collapsed, <laughs> um, is what happened. Um, NASDAQ went down 80%, um, everything. You know, there's unemployment in San Francisco is 15%. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, so that's the environment that I started investing into. Um, and what became very clear over a sh- very short period of time is that um, everyone else in the, in the business was obviously in a lot of pain and suffering. Um, and there wasn't really a good, bless you, there wasn't really a good um, kind of entity or, or, or people or you know, a person or set of people to go and, and help them with their liquidity issues. Um, so, uh, you know, I had that personal experience with Spedera, and I would have right. sold some of Spedera, right? I mean, right, right. Um, to someone to try to de-risk it. Um, and then everybody was having this experience, and so I started offering people, you know, money to, to buy their stock because I had some money from my first experience and entrepreneurs I knew that had made money uh, with me. And um, we started buying people's securities, and I ended up buying the uh, division of... Um, electronic data systems in 2002 called EDS Ventures. Mm-hmm. And then I bought Enron's division when they went bankrupt. Called so they were just holding on to a bunch of assets that they'd invested They had corporate in. venture fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had publicly announced they are going to put a billion dollars in venture capital. And then they ended up putting, when I bought it, it ended up being about 50, about 55 million of cost. Uh, they had started, right? Yep. And they announced yep. they yep. started yep. and the thing, yep. market yep. collapsed and then they stopped and then they sold it off to me. I, and I just want to, I just want to um, be clear there, but he, watching this and, and, and here understands kind of what we're talking a little inside baseball. So what happened is a couple of big companies that have war chests of money, they said, we're going to start making our own investments into other companies. So maybe, you know, a startup or a company that maybe three or four years into it, they had issued the big company that was making these individual investments had problems. Enron, we know about Enron's problems. EDS decided they didn't want to do venture. So now they were sitting there with these investments really orphaned, like nobody wanted to manage them. That's where Hans stepped in and said, hey, I'll take those off your hands. If you hold on to them, they're not going to be liquid for a long, long time. And that's really your, that was your first foray into the secondary market. It was, yeah. So that's, you know, 2002, 2003, 2004, I went out and bought uh, a number of these corporate That was risky, man. man. We still weren't out of the bubble. Like, yeah. I mean, or out of the trough, I should say. People were sort of, they were throwing up their hands, saying the Internet's not. I mean, I think what I do is extremely risky. I mean, I do it in a way that helps risk adjust it, um, but I think investing into private companies and private funds with ten-year lockups and yeah. liquidity is pretty risky. Yep, yep. Um, so I, and then especially you know if if the market's a bear market, buying into that's even riskier. So um, right, because so, you then have no view on liquidity. So um, what what is, I know it's it's hard to really think about it um, all these years later, but 
I know you've said that the Facebook offering sort of, that's when you were like, finally, people are doing, or talking about what well, I've been doing. Well, it's when Silicon Valley, the whole ecosystem changed their opinion of it. Right, right. Which accelerated the growth. Yeah, it Up was until really that, looked down upon before. Yeah. Like, you're a turncoat. What do you mean, Hans, you're not in? Come on, why are you selling? That's right. And you could buy, you could, so now we're talking about entrepreneurs for the most part. An entrepreneur might be worth $50 million on paper. In other words, their stock at the last valuation that somebody put money into the company, if you did the math, it would be $50 million. But what they could buy with it was nothing. They couldn't even buy a latte. And so it was a frustrating experience for somebody who had a paper wealth of, of X but couldn't even rent a decent apartment. And yeah. so you could, and most companies would let you sell some modest amount of money maybe to buy a home, but there was a definite level where beyond that people got a little, little Yeah, they wouldn't let you do it. They'd restrict your you from investors doing didn't it. want you to do it. Yep. Your coworkers didn't want yep. you to do it. And if you did it, you'd never raise any money ever again. And right, right. I think that that that's part of the market. I think the other part of the market was the venture funds themselves viewed it as themselves never selling the stock until an IPO or M and A event. Mm. And what happened was, I think between the period of two thousand and two thousand and eight, when all these corporate there was no IPOs. There was no IPOs. The market collapsed. They regulated the stock market. They kicked out all the small brokers. They decimalized the stock market. Yep. So all, the, yep. all these small investment banks that brokered yep. all the stock that helped all the IPOs all went away. And all the liquidity dried up and everything happened. And a lot of factors happened in the venture business while I was buying up people's investments that forced kind of a reassessment of the, of the old guards' right. um, opinions. And then it... The companies themselves and the founders and the employees, like Facebook, for example, got to the point where since they started, they didn't have liquidity and their valuation was so high that everyone started complaining that they weren't able to sell. And then, right. you know, the, 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 the founder and CEO of Facebook said, you know, we don't want to go public yet, and, but we want to give people liquidity. And then there was also an issue with how many, um, they, had a, they had a law that stated a certain number of um, shareholders were in a company, and then if, if you broke that shareholder limit, then you would have to list. And so there was some regulatory mm-hmm, pressures mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. well. And so there was all these things that happened. Uh, so there was about 10 of them that kind of forced the venture business to reassess what was going on. And then when Facebook did a large secondary um, and some of the venture funds sold securities, the whole market changed their right, opinions and right. said, whoa, we can actually get liquidity to this way. Yep. Um, and the opinion of, you know, doing secondaries, I would say, fundamentally changed because companies embraced it, the employees wanted it, the venture funds said it was okay, and that caused the market to explode. And that was one of the Um, first, you'd been doing it for years, but that was one of the first high-profile situations where the investment bankers or the Wall Street guys got some of their money taken away from them. Like, look at Spotify today. So so I shouldn't date this video, but sorry. Spotify um, basically said... We're not giving a bunch of money to a bunch of investment bankers. We're going to do it uh, direct, and we're not going to float it the way the yeah. old school did. Well, I still paid I, Morgan Stanley, but not in the way they did. Yeah, but you know, but they didn't give them that ten to fifty percent built-in. That's right. Profit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and I think that's just the uh, shape of things to come. And I think we saw it for the first time on a large scale with Facebook. Yeah. And you were right there. Like, if you had decided to jump in at that point, it would have been too late. Like share probably. I mean, think about, remember those share posts or whatever they yeah, were? Yeah, they all came to me when they started, and I'll ask for opinions, and so I, you know, I met all of them. Right? Yeah. Second market. Are any of them still going. around? I mean. Uh, they are, but they're, they look differently than they did. Um, you know, the, the, the secondary market for, for what, you know, secondaries uh, in the venture business has, has changed every, right. it's developed and changed and developed and changed, and it's gone through multiple cycles of, 
development and change, and it's at a place now where um, it's functioning well, but it looks different than it did five years ago or even ten years ago. Right. Um, and so, you know, as the market, you know, grew, the participants grew, the uh, way things were done became more complicated. Um, how companies and funds approached it were different, and then the markets kind of evolved. It's actually been fascinating from an yeah. economic, yeah. you know, if you take economics here, uh, perspective of watching a new market. And, and it's not it, done. I mean, it's and it's, I would say it's probably in the fifth inning. Yep. Um, you know, we had uh, different securities come in the market like any other financial market. We had loan, loan option exercise um, deals. We had forward contracts. We had a lot of different securities that weren't normal purchase and sales of stock uh, develop in this market as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't seen options developed yet. But there's some, some sort of put and call structures in some of these deals. Um, but there's, you know, there's, there's like futures and things. There's the forward contracts and things that, that have been layered into the market. Um, so the uh, you know this this is a fully functioning financial market. Mm-hmm. It's just private. Uh, it it's I think it's the secondary market in venture capital today. I think is is probably half the size of the primary market, and I think that it'll probably grow to the same size as the primary market. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at other financial markets, the secondary market's bigger than the primary market because the primary issuance, like if you buy a car, if you buy a house, if you buy a mortgage, if you get a mortgage or whatever. That's a one-time event. Right. When the resale of that happens multiple times, so the the size of the market typically is bigger on the secondary right. side. There's than the like primary a multiplier side. effect. So I actually think that the secondary market in this market can be bigger than the primary venture market, which is amazing to say. Yeah. Because you know, 18 years ago when I started doing this, it was didn't exist. Yeah. So it's it's fascinating. Honestly. So I'm going to go to this. I have one more question, but uh, you're up next. So, so I should have, I, I didn't, dis- lack, I didn't um, not disclose it out of um, anything other than just ignorance. I forgot to mention that you've invested in, in my funds in the past. Yes, we did. You have. So, um, and you were very kind. And it was interesting. We had, I think, one institutional investor when we talked to you. Maybe, they, maybe we didn't even have them yet. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. We weren't really looking for institutional money. Um, and this is probably '09, oh, maybe I can't really remember. Um, when you guys came in, all the rest of our meetings got a lot easier because you know they always ask you, "Well, who else is in?" Yeah, who are like Hans, and they're like, "He's pretty smart." Uh, well, it's me and my partners, right? It's our firm. But. They leaned in. No, but, I'd, I, but we would say industry. We, and they're we, like, they're like, really? Yeah. Well, we bought a secondary and also gave you primary capital, yeah. right? So we yeah. helped it stabilize the LP base. I think we had an LP that wanted a little liquidity. It was a good comment. Yeah. Anyway, that was a prelude. I want to make sure I disclose that. Um, it was a prelude to my next question, which is um, Chris Saka. So Chris is like a household name if you're uh, if you're following venture capital or you're following early stage investors. He's in some of the biggest deals of our lifetimes. Um, but I'm sure when you met him, he wasn't quite the Chris Saka celebrity investor that he is today. What? <laughs> no, right? not at all. No, I know. I'm, uh, I don't know him well. but I, Same personality. Uh, same shirts, yeah. Uh, he, the shirts got added later, but he's yeah. He's known for his interesting shirts. Um, so t- tell us about meeting him. And, and I think you had a 200x return on his first fund. I mean, one of the, probably one of the most successful venture funds that I know of. What was you know what were those first meetings like, and then what caused you to say, Chris? I think we should do this. Like, people weren't really creating small venture funds at that point. Yeah, so I I mean, in addition to the secondary uh, market, I 
have a partner, Roland, uh, who was one of our LPs, and then mm. uh, Chris, who we actually was our attorney at Speedera. So, when if I'll kind of take the answer in two parts or the question in two parts. Chris was your attorney. Yeah. So I didn't know that at Speedera, the company, the second company with my brother, Chris worked there as um, one of our attorneys. Um, he helped deal with the patent uh, case we had and some other things, um, and. When he left Spidera, he went to, um, that's before we sold it to Akamai, mm-hmm. he went to Google pre-IPO, and uh, there's some funny stories around him going there, and then um, Akamai trying to find him, right, <laughs> um, to subpoena him. <laughs> um, and uh, I think the story goes, if it's accurate, is that, you know, the, the CEO of Akamai called the CEO of Google and said, hey, you know, you just hired... Uh, a guy that was on the other side of this patent case that we're going through. Um, why'd you do that? And so the CEO of Google called in Chris and, and who are you and, and why is the <laughs> why CEO? Why call? is the CEO of Akamai calling me? Um, and then when he heard the story, he's like, "Oh, you sound great. You should do, be on our special projects." And 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 I think he got promoted. Um, <laughs> it's, it's funny, but I think it's true. Um, so. So he started working on special projects and doing all those things, and we kept in touch a little bit here and there. But when he left Google, he started angel funding investments, mm. and some of those um, teams came out of Google, um, the engineers and whatnot. And um, I had a newsletter that I was sending to friends and family every quarter. That way I would just you know, send it to myself and BCC, all my friends and, and, yep. and contacts. And... Um, I would recommend you doing this because he responded to one of them and said, hey, we should catch up and grab coffee because nice. I've got you know this angel portfolio I built and, and uh, I'm running out of money. Um, and so I met him for coffee and, um, and said, I said, why don't you take that portfolio and stick it in a fund and I'll put dollar for dollar the cash and the stock you put in the portfolio. I'll match it. Um, what were some of the companies in that portfolio? So they were Instagram, Twitter were the two that... Uh, Never heard of them? Were... Uh, look like they're going to be amazingly successful at the time, um, and but it, for 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 us it was it wasn't that difficult of a decision because we saw our, our saw our cash coming back off of those mm. by putting them in the fund. Yep. So the risk was low, and then we gave them primary capital. Right. Um, so I put two million in, uh, he put two million of stock in, and we went out. We were originally going to go raise two million from others. Um, and we ended up raising, or he ended up raising $4 million from others. So it ended up being an $8 million fund. And then he, one of his first investments out of there you know, was, was Uber. And he bought uh, 5% of Uber for $300,000, um, which, you know, you can do the math. It's amazing. Um, but he had all three in the fund, right? He had Twitter, wow. Instagram, and Uber. And so the fund went parabolic. Um, and then he and I worked on buying secondaries and Twitter um, together. Um, and you know he he went and you know he's you can go look at his investment track record, but it's phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. if you ever get a chance um, to hear him speak or just Google some of his talks, interesting. He is interesting a better character. speaker than me for sure. <laughs> interesting. Um, but the um, that's why I said he was your lawer. I was like shocked yeah, that he was a he lawyer. He was a lawyer. Nobody knew that. Doesn't seem like, um, doesn't seem like the lawyerly type. Obviously, should have been a venture capitalist. <laughs> um, but um, did Uber just as an aside? I know when Travis was there, they mm-hmm. were pretty ardent about selling. Has have the folks at Uber been able to do stuff in the secondary? Or? They did. Um, you know, they, there was a restriction on sale for a long time, um, even though some 
folks over that period were able to sell here and there based on whatever the board decided. Um, but the, um, the, the, the real liquidity um, happened recently when SoftBank came in and did mm -hmm. a, a tender that was yeah, public yeah. information. Yep. Um, and then a lot of the But folks, not much before that, just ad hoc. There wasn't very much before that. Um, yep. Okay. But, well, but I promise this, I've got to get to some of my students' questions. No so worries. I just keep talking. Um, what factors make up the GC scorecard, which helps you evaluate the future profitability of investing in a startup? Interesting. So, yeah, we have a, well, our GP scorecard that we have, which was developed by my partner, Roland, um, is focused on venture funds, right? Not on companies. So there's, there's I guess there's, there's, we don't have a scorecard for companies. So, so I'll talk about the one we have for funds. Um, you know, we, we have a, a set of criteria that we look for for funds. We've tried to systematize finding uh, these small venture funds that can have outsized return potential, uh, but also have uh, protection, you know, like risk-mitigated capital for us. So if we can right. invest in them at a minimum, we get our money back. But if, you know, things work out, we make three times our money. And if, if there's outlier events, like lowercase, maybe you make a huge sum of money, um, and we build a portfolio of these. Um, but some of the criteria are, you know, we look at prior track record um, of investing. So we like to see people who have already made investments. Um, if they haven't made investments previously, um, typically they have to come from a, either a company or an ecosystem of entrepreneurs where um, we know that there's unbelievable high-quality companies and being formed and un unbelievable entrepreneurs that, that are starting things where we actually can't have access through others. Mm -hmm. um, so um, if it's not a direct investment track record, it has to be some sort of track record of entrepreneurship or having been in an ecosystem of entre entrepreneurship. So like, for example, if you could have invested in the PayPal entrepreneurship ecosystem a long time ago, you'd be you know, just fine. Um, we're looking for those types of ecosystems. Um, and that, then you can invest in people that don't have you know, a prior track record because um, you're, you're using that, that, that that person or those people for access to things and you know companies and talent you can't get to um, but you know there's also a set of criteria around you know the the types and the portfolio construction that they that they have so you know I have two partners and what they do is they you know and I have a team of people underneath them that what they're doing is they're looking for the next lowercase they're looking for the next you know Rincon they're looking for the next small venture fund that can have a really outsized return potential um, but have a a low risk of capital loss through to the LP. Um, and, and part of that is around portfolio construction. So um, on the portfolio construction side, you know, we like to see, you know, uh, these, these, these funds by a larger ownership of c the companies for a small amount of cash. So that makes, you know, that makes sense if they work, but also not do too many, too many of those. So you want to see, you know, I'd say more than 25 or 30 investments for fund is, of has any sort of scale is is probably too much. You know, if you hit fifty plus, you get too indexed. So you need to have a fund that's kind of diversified enough so that it can have half the companies lose all their money, right? And not and still have enough investments where you have enough impact. So when those winners win, they return your whole, you know, fund with a multiple. But you don't have too much of that because if you have too much of that, you know, there's some examples of funds like the, one of the funds I won't mention because uh, he's done an amazing job and he's one of the most successful angel investors but one of his funds he seed was a seed in, 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 in Google 
and the fund, you know, you know, barely returned capital um, because he had, you know, 200 deals in there, and you know, 25 grand, 25 grand, 50 grand, 50 grand, 200 deals, and even when one becomes Google, there's just too much. You know, it's not enough. There's that 25 grand doesn't make an impact to the whole sum of dough put out, right? Even if it does a, you know, 50x or whatever. So, the um, you want to see some concentration, and you want to see. Large ownership percentages, right? So you want to see 5% ownership, 10% ownership, 25% ownership, 30% ownership. Um, even if they, you know, funds that start their companies themselves, you know, they get 80% ownership. Um, you want to see larger ownership percentages, but not too much of that, right? Because if you have too much of that, then maybe their time isn't spent appropriately, right? Because they need to have a certain amount of time spent per company to help it work. So there's a model related to this. Um, I think we've we've published some uh, articles related to it, but I think portfolio construction in venture funds is a under um, understood or under appreciated um, thing because when you look at the highly successful funds, um, you know they 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 are more concentrated than you would normally think they yep. would be. Right. Um, you and you need to have big ownership, right? Because if you had 0.1 percent ownership. Right versus ten percent ownership in the something worth a billion dollars, it's like very material, right? You need to have enough cash coming back. So there's a there's a set of financial metrics that we look for too. I mean, there's a whole scorecard of stuff, um, but I think you know the reality is is that you're investing in people when you write a check to funds, and so it's about the people, um, and then you're investing in their investment capability, their hustle, and then their network. And so it's almost like, you know, it's, you're investing in athletes. Yep, yep. Um, and it's, it's similar probably if you're a, a, a sports athlete mm-hmm. agent, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, you're looking for the next Steph Curry. Yep. Uh, it gets easier once you've found a Steph Curry because <laughs> then Steph tells everybody else to right. call you. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think out of the gate, it's probably one of the most difficult things to find. Yeah. Part, of, part of it's lucky too, right? So being in the right place at the right time. Putting yourself in the right place at the right time. And then taking the risk, because at that point, investing with him was an extremely risky. Right, right. We are the only institutional investor in the fund, because no one else wanted to write a check. Right. Chris who? Yeah. So I'm going to go. Um, let's skip the next to start up uh, student questions, since I've been going on and on. So your company's primary commitments involve a structure where industry best Ventures invests as a limited partner at the inception of a fund is mm-hmm. capable of taking a leading role and is comfortable sitting on LP advisory committees. Mm-hmm. I was wondering, is that similar or different from other liquidity providers, and how does this help your company succeed? Yeah, so we, I mean, we created our fund of funds, right, funding these small venture funds and doing some co-investments with them in '09. After we did lowercase, we actually, I actually bought. Roland's business. He was an LP in our fund, and mm-hmm. we bought his company. I think when we met him, he, you guys were consummating that deal, or it was... Yeah, it was right along there. Yeah. And um, so I actually, instead of home-growing that capability, I actually bought it um, with a great partner who's ended up being fantastic, honestly. Um, and, you know, it's all about people, right? So he, he, was, he was the right person um, in retrospect, and he helped me build it all out. Um, now, having that capability in the firm is strategic because um, now I can work with the venture funds from the beginning of their life, right? 
to the end, and also the companies from the beginning to the end. So, for example, with John's firm, right, we went and bought part of his first fund, gave him some money in his second fund using this capability, and then did some co-investments with his fund. Yep. Um, and that's not that that wasn't part of my liquidity secondary fund, right? I have three different funds, um, but you know, if 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 John's LPs in the later funds that are more fully funded want liquidity, I can buy them in my secondary fund. And if 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 John goes out and finds um, and seed and seeds Uber, I can go use my you know secondary fund to help the the CEO and management provide liquidity to the employees, or maybe buy out a hedge fund or something like that. So. In terms of the, the the investment platform that we have today, it, it's 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 extremely important because it allows the discussion to be from the beginning, right, of, of, of something to the end. When before we were operating more on just the end part of the market, um, that's also gives us capabilities to look at what other parts of the market need um, help, yeah. right, with capital. Where are the inefficiencies? Where where's the need? What do the venture funds need? What do the companies need for, for capital? And who provides that? And can we provide it in a different way or, or in, a, in, a, in, a, in a unique competitive way? Yep. So it, it's, it's, it's strategic. There, there, aren't, there aren't too many other people in our market that have this capability, actually. So I'd say there's probably a handful in the world. So there's, it's been helpful. That's interesting because you did, you know, much like a, a non-financial services company, you looked at the ecosystem and you said, we don't really play over here, but it's very complimentary. Let's let's look at what we can acquire in that space. It's all about the people. Like, Yeah, I viewed this business since day one as an operating company. Yeah. Um, you know, other people in this industry don't view it that way. Um, but I've viewed it as a, an entrepreneurial activity, as an operating business. Um, and that means, you know, what, how are we competitively different? What are the areas of the market where we can compete? Yep. How can we have a long-term sustainable advantage? How can we be different? How, how can we be the first call? Right? How can we be that party that everyone goes to? How yep. can we build the brand? How can we, you know? Everybody's got money. You've got to have something. I think the money. financial services business is brutal. Yeah. It's money tough. just flows. So if you find a hole or a, or a segment of the market that's inefficient, um, it becomes efficient over time. So right. you've got to have right. capabilities to move around. And um, I look back, and my partners look back at kind of what we've done over the, this long period of time, and I think that's probably one of the key components of this business is that we've been able to build it in a flexible, entrepreneurial way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, we will continue to do that, because um, otherwise I don't know how we generate sustainable long-term returns. Great. Well, thanks again for coming. Appreciate it. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.